to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this is The Friedman Report. Well, it wasn't a particularly good week for the Democrats. First, there was the fallout from the absolute chaos of the Iowa caucus, and that is a gift that keeps giving when you're in the news business. The story just gets worse and worse, and we'll get to that in a minute. Then there were the New Hampshire primaries on Tuesday, which were a bit more orderly and, frankly, more normal. But then there was more bad news about the China coronavirus. But it was mostly contained to China and several cruise ships, including one that docked in Bayonne, New Jersey. So it didn't impact the U.S. as much as it did China. And the economy, the American economy, with the stock market in the lead, hardly noticed. Things also got stirred up in the Middle East this week, something you may not even heard about because it was buried among stories about the Academy Awards, which, by the way, I'm not going to talk about, and the politics of Pelosi, Schiff, Nadler crew, who it seems have not given up their vendetta against President Trump, and who now seem to be cooking up some new mischief instead of getting back to their work for we, the people. Okay, so let's get started. First, the politics. The campaigns for the Democrat candidates in the first contests of this campaign season, that couldn't have started off much worse. Wow! It began with several months of nonstop campaigning in Iowa. Believe it or not, it all began last summer, last summer, during the Iowa State Fair. And it never stopped, not until last week. So from August 2019 until February 2020, Iowa was inundated, swamped, with candidates wanting to meet the voters, to shake hands and kiss babies, to get their messages out to the Democrats who would go to the polls on February 3rd. The candidates spent a fortune on these trips to Iowa, and there wasn't a weekend since August when one candidate or another wasn't in Iowa trying to win the vote of the country's first election of the season. And finally, finally, it was February 3rd. Two things happened that provided the candidates, and the voters, by the way, with major disappointment. In the first place, the turnout was unexpectedly small. It was a disaster. Far fewer people than were expected turned out to vote for this very contentious election. Today, more than a week later, we still don't know for sure who won. But in approximate numbers, 174,415 Democrats came out to vote. Out of 478,035 registered Democrats, that's only 36%. 36% of registered voters came out to vote for these people who had knocked themselves out and spent huge fortunes trying to win their votes, 36%. Now, the Republicans were a different story. Ironically, 31,000 Republicans came out to cast their votes for President Trump, who was running unopposed and received 97% of their vote. But for the Democrats... 
There was no clear winner. The win was split between Bernie Sanders and Pete Buttigieg. Elizabeth Warren came in a distant third, and Joe Biden came in even further behind, and we don't know exactly how many votes any of the candidates actually got. Have you noticed that in recent elections, the differential in the vote count gets smaller all the time? The number of votes for the Democrats and the number of votes for the Republicans gets closer and closer, so that even in many major elections with tens of millions of voters, the race is almost 50-50 and very difficult to call. This is an interesting phenomenon, and I will be talking about it in another show. But here's a phenomenon that applies to this year's race. The candidates are getting nastier with each other and even with the voters. Crazy Joe called one of his potential supporters in Iowa a damned liar. And he called a student who asked him about his showing in the Iowa caucus and how he thinks he's going to be able to make it in the national election. He called her a, quote, lying dog-faced pony soldier, unquote. Whatever he meant by that remark is unclear, and his explanations don't make it any clearer. He says it was a joke. But the student was offended, and my guess is that he didn't win any friends by calling her that. And then there's Elizabeth Warren, who responded to a questioner who asked her who her Mike Pence would be if she were elected president. Meaning, of course, who would she choose for her vice president? Warren said, quote, I already have a dog, unquote. Very classy. What we used to call swear words have been flying around fast and loose, even on the nationally televised debate stage. It is, in fact, the most uncivil campaign season in my lifetime, and it doesn't speak well for us as Americans that we use the election process to lambast each other with vulgarity, unsubstantiated accusations, and lies. The level of discourse in this campaign cycle is at rock bottom. In fact, there is no real discourse, no dialogue, only epithets and derision. It is a pathetic start to what promises to be an energetic but very negative year on the campaign trail. And by the way, this goes for both sides. I think that some of the president's jabs at his opponents leave some room for criticism. And although his rally audiences seem to love them, I don't think they contribute to the civil discourse in the country at a time when the conversation seems to be spinning out of control. What concerns me is this. When the frustration level gets so high that enthusiasm turns into violence, we will have a different kind of problem on our hands. One of the most graphic threats coming from the left is from a guy named Kyle Jurek, who calls himself a field organizer for the Sanders campaign. Last month, he posted on Twitter his idea of what America would look like if Sanders is not the Democratic nominee. He described a detailed plan for civil unrest that will start in Milwaukee and spread to all the major cities in America. He wrote this, quote, be ready to be in Milwaukee for the DNC convention. 
we're going to make 1968 look like an effing Girl Scout effing cookout, unquote. Of course, he didn't say effing. Then he issued another threat, this one to police. Quote, the cops are going to be the ones that are getting effing beaten in Milwaukee. He wrote that. Apparently, his store of adjectives is extremely limited. I have no idea why Bernie Sanders allows this nutbag anywhere near his campaign. And maybe he is already gone. But if he is gone, he went out with a bang. On January 15th, Front Page Magazine quoted him as saying this, quote, Those people who don't accept the revolution should be shot. You want to fight against the revolution? You're going to die for it, mother effer, unquote. Nice talk on behalf of Bernie Sanders, don't you think? With friends like that, who needs enemies? And where does all this lead? Well, here's an example of exactly where it leads. On Saturday, a man in a van drove into a tent with Trump campaign volunteers that was set up in a Walmart parking lot in Jacksonville, Florida. The purpose of the tent was to register people to vote. And as things turned out, fortunately, happily, no one was hurt. And the 27-year-old man behind the attack was later arrested and charged with two counts of aggravated assault on a person over 65 years old, criminal mischief, and driving without a license. He allegedly told police that he ran over the tent because he didn't like President Donald Trump because, quote, Somebody had to do something. Someone had to take a stand, unquote. Local Republicans and Democrats and Republicans on the national stage and even the president condemned the attack immediately. Not surprisingly, though, national Democrats like House Speaker Nancy Pelosi have been strangely silent. And in fact, on the following day, a prayerful Pelosi, oh, she's so prayerful, said that what she would advise children who might be interested in politics, that they, quote, gotta be ready to throw a punch, unquote. And in another incident this past weekend, a man with a knife was arrested near the White House saying he wanted to kill the president. This, my friends, is where uninhibited, hateful speech can lead when it is allowed to become the norm and when it comes from people whom we are supposed to look up to. So getting back to the pre-election elections, the story that started with the Iowa caucuses is, believe it or not, still going on. Now, the Iowa caucus is usually an orderly and rather polite affair. People share their political opinions and promote their favorite candidate, and then they vote. As in most elections, the tallying of the votes is a rather routine affair, and the results are announced later that evening. Nice. Only this time, there was a huge glitch, one that nobody expected or knew how to handle. It seems that although the head of the DNC, Tom Perez, now places full blame on the chairman of the Iowa Democrat Party, Troy Price, for the computer problems that created the chaos, that's not the way things actually happened. According to sources other than Perez, 
who is sticking to his story and blaming it on Price. Before the caucus, Price told Perez that the party in Iowa would be using their system to tally the votes after the caucus. And Perez told Price, no, that would not be the way it's being done. Instead, they would be using a new app that was developed for this purpose by a group called Shadow Inc., which is, by the way, and no surprise, a company associated with the Clinton machine. Okay, and guess what? It had never been tested before. Yikes. Now, if you've ever worked on software, you know it's complicated. And no software ever gets out of the box without being thoroughly tested so that the bugs are removed and the product works like it's supposed to, without glitches and without crashes. Wouldn't you think that this would be an important consideration before launching such a critical software package in such an important election? The first election of the season for President of the United States? Why would anyone take such a risk, particularly in this case, when a whole set of new rules had just been put in place? And the process of tallying the votes had just become much more complicated. The caucuses were never simple or easy for non-Iowans to follow, but they had just gotten much more complicated. So what happened? The software didn't work, and the Democrats in Iowa couldn't get the results of the caucus votes. The very best they could do was to get a meager 62% of the vote tally two days later. And that was hardly enough. There were no absolute winners, and it would take weeks to sort out this mess. In fact, it still hasn't been sorted out, and both Sanders and Buttigieg have demanded a re-canvassing of the vote. And so did Perez, by the way, who of course continues to blame it all on Troy Price. Unbelievable. But wait, and it gets, it gets worse. Judicial Watch, a government watchdog group in Washington, uncovered voter fraud in the caucus. They say that there were eight counties in Iowa with nearly half a million eligible voters that have 18,600 more caucus voters than they have registered voters. How about that? So life in political Iowa gets much more interesting as the story continues to unravel. I'll keep you posted, but it seems that the Democrats in the sleepy Midwest and the cornfields that Iowa is famous for just got swampier. And they're following in the footsteps of their mentors in Washington. Who knew? So now we move on to the primary elections in New Hampshire. And the field has been changing a bit with Buttigieg and Sanders still in the lead and Kobachar closing in behind them, while Warren was slipping a bit. And Biden? <laughs> he left town. I guess the drama in which he was continuing to slip in the polls was just too much for him. So just before the polls opened, he slipped out and shipped out to South Carolina where the next primaries will take place. Lindsey Graham had a comment about the disunity and lack of civility. He said, quote, You're seeing the demise of the Democrat Party as we have known it. 
And he predicted that as each Democrat candidate implodes in the coming primaries, Bloomberg will slip in and fill the gap. And even though Amy Klobuchar is rising in the New Hampshire polls, Graham says that she's not going to be able to compete with Bloomberg. Quote, he's just got too much money, he said. Okay, so now we go back to Tuesday night and get the results of the New Hampshire primaries. Sanders won the primary. With 84% of the votes tallied, he commanded 25.8%. Buttigieg came in second with 24.4%. Klobuchar came in third with 19.9%. Warren fourth with only 9.4%. And Biden last with 8.4%. And that's about the size of it for now. Now I have to take a short break so you can hear from the good people at America Out Loud. But I'll be right back. But I'll be right back with news about the coronavirus from China. It's your news and entertainment network. News blogs, informative podcasts, entertaining videos, or listen to 24-7 talk radio on our free apps on Apple, Android, or Alexa. We the people, AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. Welcome to the new era in communications. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health. Sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multinutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa. Award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. You know, the stories about China and the novel coronavirus that is now terrifying the world. These stories are growing in both number and intensity. They just keep getting worse and worse. So there's a lot of talk out there about everything related to the virus, and it's interesting. But to be honest, it's also quite scary. As of Tuesday morning, There were 13 confirmed cases of coronavirus in the United States, in addition to 800 people currently under quarantine on U.S. military bases in various parts of the country. These are people who were in Wuhan, China, and were airlifted out by the United States and placed in quarantine when they arrived back in the States. For 200 lucky ones... They went through the 14-day quarantine without showing any signs of the virus, and on Tuesday, they were allowed to leave. 
The American protocols, as well as the overall health care system here, are considerably better than those in China, which may provide a partial explanation about how, so far, the spread of the virus has been largely contained here. On the other hand, this is not an ordinary virus, and it may ultimately demonstrate other characteristics that we have not seen yet and don't know how to anticipate. But there'll be characteristics that can make it far more dangerous than it may be now. Why do I say that? Well, as you know, the Chinese have not been either forthcoming or honest with us about the virus, its source, and its known potential. This is very troubling, to say the least. What we do know, and it is still considered to be conspiracy theory, but it is based on solid, first-hand accounts from China, this is not a normal virus. It's an engineered virus. It was created in a lab that was studying the SARS virus, only this is much more powerful than the SARS, as we already know. In the short time that it has been viable, it has killed more people than the SARS virus did in its entire lifespan. When the whole truth, or as much of it as is possible to know, is revealed, the story will be grim and deeply disturbing. If you've been listening to the show in previous weeks, you already know some of that story. It's not, as it has been called, conspiracy theory. As I say, it is based on first-hand intelligence, and some of the sources are no longer alive to confirm the truth of it, and that's why we may never know the whole story. Either they have been silenced by the Chinese government for fabricating, quote, misinformation, unquote, despite the videos and photographic evidence to the contrary, or they have succumbed to the disease itself. Let me give you an example of this. Dr. Li Wenliang. Dr. Li was an ophthalmologist who practiced in the Wuhan Central Hospital. He was the man who first identified the virus after he saw seven cases that he thought looked like SARS. That was a virus that created a pandemic in 2003, SARS. It sickened nearly 8,100 people in 17 countries and killed 774. Dr. Lee saw the new virus in Wuhan and tried to warn other doctors. On December 30th, he sent them an online message in a Weibo chat room. He wanted them to know about this illness and to warn them to wear protective clothing when they treated patients with these symptoms so they would not also be infected. Four days later, when the virus had started to spread out of control, the police reprimanded eight doctors, including Dr. Lee, for, quote, making false comments, unquote, on social media. He was summoned to the Public Security Bureau where he was told to sign a letter in which he was accused of, quote, making false comments that had severely disturbed the social order, unquote. Even though the police were criticized later by China's Supreme Court, the doctors had reason to be fearful. The Chinese government has a long arm and a clenched fist. Then, on January 10th, Dr. Li began to cough. The next day, he spiked a fever, 
and two days later he was in the hospital, and he shared his story on Weibo from his hospital bed. He was diagnosed with a novel coronavirus on January 30th. He was pronounced dead on Friday night, February 7th. Dr. Lee's death was announced on Saturday morning, and the anger that was unleashed throughout China was enormous. At first, the Chinese people had called Dr. Lee a whistleblower, which the Chinese government rejected out of hand. But after he died, they began calling him Hero. Social media hummed with the thousands of posts mourning his death and demanding freedom from the Chinese government. The top two trending hashtags on the website were, quote, Wuhan government owes Dr. Li Wenliang a, an apology, unquote, and, quote, we want freedom of speech, unquote. These were very dangerous postings, and there were thousands of them. Both posts were quickly erased by the government. According to the Chinese officials, the virus mostly attacks older people over 60, people with other medical conditions, and those with compromised immune systems. Sounds good, but Dr. Lee was 34 years old, and as far as we know, he was in very good health. There are thousands of such stories. This is only one. If we are truly to understand what has happened here and how it will affect the developing spread of the virus, we need China to be honest with us. But until this week, they haven't even let medical teams from the West enter their country. Finally, they allowed the World Health Organization, a team of 15 people, into China, and they arrived this week. But remember, this is already the middle of February, and the virus began with an accident in a biohazard lab in the middle of November. November, December, January, February, three months, and the virus has spread all over the country. The numbers are huge. The official numbers are huge, but the ones that are the real numbers are much, much greater and it took them three months to call in for help. And America's CDC has still not been allowed in. You would think that in such a crisis, any assistance would be welcome. The medical systems of China are completely overwhelmed, and yet they will not accept help from what could arguably be the country with the best medical systems in the world. There's a reason why they don't want our help. They do not want us to discover the cause of this virus. It is manufactured. It was manufactured in the biohazard lab in Wuhan. And it was manufactured as a weapon of war. In an apparent show of cooperation or maybe desperation, the virus's DNA sequence has been published online and it's being studied in laboratories around the world. Is it the original virus that they've sent? I don't know. I don't even know how I could judge that. But the most important research now being carried out is the search for antiviral drugs that can stop this virus, rapid tests for diagnosis, 
and anti-HIV, anti-flu, and antibodies that can hopefully treat it, if not cure it. And by the way, the anti-HIV and anti-flu medicines have actually helped in some cases. They appear to anyway. So now they believe that the incubation period may be longer than they originally thought. That it could be as long as nine weeks instead of only two. And that also found that the virus can live on hard surfaces for nine days instead of only a few hours. Uh, what this shows us is one of two things. Either the initial evaluations were wrong or that the virus has been mutating even as it has been spreading and that the characteristics that it had only a few weeks ago are now much more dangerous than they were at the beginning because the virus has mutated. Now, as always, there are bureaucratic bungles and mistakes being made in trying to understand and treat this illness. They're made out of ignorance, carelessness, or just benign stupidity, but they are being made. The first evacuee from China, who was diagnosed with a novel coronavirus, was being quarantined in a San Diego hospital. But because of a botched testing procedure, what the deputy director of the CDC called a little bit of a mix-up, she was sent back to the Marine Corps Air Station Miramar, where other people who are still under observation but have not been diagnosed with the virus are being held. The deputy director assured the press that the patient's symptoms were minimal and that she had been wearing a mask during the transport. Hmm. She was released into a general quarantine area with other people who had not tested positive for the coronavirus. In other words, this was a person who'd been diagnosed with the disease who was being put into a general population with people who had not. And therefore, theoretically, she was putting them all at risk. In other incidents, passengers on cruise ships have been temporarily quarantined and not allowed to dock. One luxury liner, the Holland American Lines Westerdam, left Hong Kong for a 14-day cruise to Taiwan and Japan. And though none of its 1,400-plus guests or 802 crew members has shown any signs of the coronavirus, it has been turned away by five different ports. Taiwan, Japan, the Philippines, the U.S. territory of Guam, and most recently, Thailand. As of now, the patients are getting panicky from being unable to disembark, and they have now appealed to President Trump for assistance. In another incident, 27 Chinese nationals on the Anthem of the Seas were escorted off the ship in Bayonne, New Jersey, to be tested for the coronavirus. One of them was a Chinese national who claimed he had not been in China for three years, and he was furious to be grouped with others who had just been there. He said, with some justification, I think, that they were forcing him to be exposed to possible infection when there was no reason for it, except the fact that he was Chinese. This cruise ship is a part of Royal Caribbean's fleet and it was carrying more than 4,100 passengers and crew members back from the Bahamas. 
Another cruise ship, the Diamond Princess, with 3,700 people on board, was docked in Yokohama, Japan, and it was quarantined for 14 days. All of a sudden, on Monday, the number of coronavirus cases on this ship went from 70 to 136. And meanwhile, the numbers continue to rise on the Chinese mainland, and in areas like Hong Kong and Macau on China's coast, they are also feeling the effects of the growing epidemic. The question now is whether the world can avoid a pandemic, which is a large-scale event that affects multiple countries around the world. Right now we have an epidemic in China and small events in various other parts of the world. Only one day after the World Health Organization medical experts arrived in China, the director said this. With 99% of cases in China, he said, this remains very much an emergency for that country, but one that holds a very grave threat for the rest of the world. Unquote. We here in America are lucky so far, and we should be grateful for living in the most advanced country in the world, where we have the best chance of avoiding this plague that has taken over China. Now here's a quick story that we started to cover a couple of weeks ago. Do you remember the story about the march on Richmond by supporters of the Second Amendment? They were protesting the bill that the government had filed, the fundamental liberal gun control bill, that would severely inhibit the rights of lawful gun owners who consider themselves protected under the Second Amendment. Well, on Tuesday of this past week, the Virginia House of Delegates passed a sweeping gun control bill that would prohibit the sale of certain semi-automatic rifles and make it a felony to possess magazines that can hold more than 12 rounds. The measure passed 51 to 48, with all Republicans and some Democrats voting against it. Now, if you remember... 118 cities and counties across Virginia have voted on some kind of what they call Second Amendment sanctuary status, and some are even threatening to secede from Virginia and join with West Virginia, which is offering to welcome them with open arms. In fact, West Virginia lawmakers have introduced a resolution inviting Virginia's Second Amendment sanctuary counties to secede from Virginia and join the state of West Virginia. This resolution refers to the year 1863. That was the year when Republicans broke off from slave-owning Virginia and formed West Virginia because the people of West Virginia did not believe that the government at Richmond represented their interests. Just think about it for a minute. 118 cities and counties in Virginia are already willing and able to fight the government in Richmond. But if they secede, there won't be very much left of Virginia. Now, this new development is interesting, and I'll be keeping you posted about the progress of that movement and how the gun owners of Virginia are able to protect their Second Amendment rights. In the last election, the House of Delegates in Virginia, in fact, the whole Virginia government, was taken over by Democrats. 
The dynamics in the next election over the next year may be quite different from what they were two years ago. And so this entire movement and the possibility of secession may actually not materialize if the election is overwhelmingly for the Republicans and will put them back in control of the House of Delegates. We'll see. I'll keep you posted. Now, the clock is telling me that I have to take a short break, but I'll be back to share some stories with you about the Middle East, about the new peace plan for the Palestinians and the Israelis that may or may not ever go anywhere, about the camel who couldn't figure out how to get across the river, and about Iran, and about... My gosh, you just can't make this stuff up! Hello, this is Lieutenant Randy Sutton, the host of Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement. I am a 34-year police veteran. I am also the founder and CEO of an organization that stands behind injured and disabled law enforcement officers. It is called The Wounded Blue. Our website is thewoundedblue.org. We have produced a film. It is an important film. I urge you to watch it. The film details what happens when a police officer or law enforcement officer is shot or stabbed or beaten or disabled, seriously injured in the line of duty. Most people think they are taken care of medically and financially. The reality may be quite different. It is called The Wounded Blue, Service, Sacrifice, Betrayed. The film is available on Amazon, iTunes, and the Microsoft Store. Here are some stories that may make you laugh or cry, or in either case, I just couldn't make them up if I tried. Would you believe that Starbucks coffee is now promoting sex change for teens? No, I'm not making that up. Well, I guess Starbucks is what they call woke. You know how they ask you your name when you order and then write your name on the coffee cup? Well, apparently, if you're a teen with a sexual identity issue, the woke thing to do is not only to acknowledge your desire to change your gender, but to celebrate it. The Starbucks ad for the Super Bowl did just that. Quote, at Starbucks, writing your name on a cup is calling it out, is a symbol of our warm welcome. It's a small gesture, but it's symbolic of what we believe in, unquote. That's what the caption on the YouTube version of the ad said. The commercial is part of a new campaign for transgender customers entitled Hashtag What's Your Name? Starbucks says that the campaign is designed to encourage young teens to use a new name of the preferred gender in public. How many kids actually do that? How many kids are actually transgender? In the United States, it's something like one point something percent of the population. Anyway, Starbucks created the ad to make the store more welcoming to kids who want to change genders and be recognized with a new name. They said, Quote, we discovered that they found Starbucks stores to be a safe space where their new name was accepted and they could be recognized as who they are, unquote. Are we still in America 
Have we all gone mad? Well, actually, this ad was made for a UK audience, but they showed it at the Super Bowl, so... Honestly, you just can't make this stuff up. And here's another one. You all know who General Michael Flynn is. He was spied on by the Obama deep state who wanted to ruin him. He was targeted by the Mueller investigation. He was honest, and they weren't. He was set up and tricked into contradicting himself, and then they got him for lying. He has suffered plenty for his honesty and their hatred. So this week, his wife, Barbara Flynn, posted a tweet that was both honest and touching. She wrote this, quote, My husband is being treated like he's public enemy number one. All he did was help at real Donald Trump become POTUS and did his job as incoming NSA. Our government that he protected for 33 years turned against him. Sad. Unquote. That was the tweet. That was it. So guess what happened next? Twitter did something really bizarre. They erased all the names of the people she was following. All 11,500 people she was following. So the next day she wrote this. After posting a comment about my husband last night, I woke up to this below. Twitter took away all 11,500 people I was following. Back to square one. Unquote. What in the world is wrong with people? What is wrong with the people at Twitter? Are they all mad? What was the point of removing the people she was following? Are they the all-knowing great critics of Twitter pros? I don't think so. They're trying to trash the wife of one of our national heroes. But you know what? What they did is really not okay. They're pushing their weight around in a way that is deeply offensive for no particular reason except that they don't like her political viewpoint and they don't like her husband because they like what the deep state likes and they don't like what the deep state doesn't like. But Godspeed to the Flynn's. Thank you for your service. Thank you for all you have done for this country. And to Twitter and your left of left pals, how tacky can you get? You just can't make this stuff up. And one more story. It's back to AOC. She's always coming up with material that I can't really turn away from. It's another kind of story. No surprises here. Just expect the most bizarre stories. And it turns out that the MTA in New York is completely unimpressed with this member of Congress. In a taped segment, AOC wanted to give her viewers a tour of the Bronx. Okay, I guess that's a thing if you're AOC and you want to stay in front of the camera. So she took her viewers, on a tour of some of her old haunts in the Bronx. At the beginning of this film segment, AOC and two of her fellow Bronx natives explained that they were, quote, kicked out by the transit police for filming in the Parkchester subway station. Really? 
What were you doing there? Well, it turns out that AOC went back to the Bronx to her home borough where they had just had an argument with the MTA. I wonder if she went up to the MTA person, the guard, or whoever threw them out, and said to him, Do you know who I am? It just goes to show, she said, no matter how high you go, we still get checked on the MTA. I wonder what would have happened if they tried to hop over the <laughs> the gate. And then one of the things she said on the film said was that an online comment you get a lot is, go back to bartending. That's not insulting. I feel like people are always clowning themselves when they say that. You think every person you represent that's a bartender, a waitress, a working person, what, that they can't do this job? She's talking about Congress. Because let me tell you, she said, I work with some of these people, and they're not smarter than a bartender, unquote. Really, AOC, uh-huh. Nothing speaks louder than a self-appointed world savior in front of a camera. You can't make this stuff up. Now, I promised you that I would talk a bit about the Middle East, and there's a lot to talk about, so let's dig into that. There's a new peace agreement written by the Trump team and accepted by Israel, but it's not clear that it's going anywhere because the Palestinians, Abbas, Mahmoud Abbas is his name, he's the head of the Palestinians, and he isn't having any of it. He's right about the map they made, though. He says, he says it's sort of like Swiss cheese. It has several little bits of Palestine scattered along the Gaza border. Who in their right mind would accept that as a country? If you haven't seen the map yet, take a look. It's a little crazy. But maybe that's the point. Maybe the Palestinians who have turned down one peace deal after another, including one that seemed to give them 95% of what they were asking for, maybe this deal is meant to be one that they can't really accept. You know, the one where they got 95% of what they were asking for? What negotiator does that? But they turned it down anyway, and then they started an uprising a month later. How do you make peace with people like that? But don't expect it to make sense. Remember the story about the camel and the scorpion? I tell it about once a year because it's appropriate when you're talking about this part of the world, the Middle East. Okay, so here's the story. There was a camel who wanted to cross the river. And as he was trying to figure out where was the best place to cross, a scorpion came along and he asked for a ride on the camel's back across the river. He said, I can't get across the river by myself. Look at me, I'm so small. And I can't swim. Put me on your back. Let me get up there and, and we can go across together. And the camel said, are you crazy? If I let you on my back, you'll sting me and I'll drown. Don't be silly, said the scorpion. If I did that, then I'd drown too. Well, that makes sense, the camel said. Well, okay, hop on. And the scorpion did. And they started to go across the river together. And when they got to the middle, 
and the water was almost up to the top of the camel's hump where the scorpion was, the scorpion pulled his tail over his head and stung the camel. Why did you do that? said the camel. We'll both drown. The scorpion shrugged what would have been his shoulders had he had them, and he said, Why did I do that? How should I know? This is the Middle East. And so it goes. In the Middle East, you don't have to make sense. The people who live there don't think the way we do or behave the way we do. They're different. And if we want to succeed there, we need to understand that. So as far as the peace plan is concerned, maybe Trump's plan is to meet them halfway by making a deal that gives them less than they were offered before. And if they turn that down, the offer will be even less next time. Will it work? I don't know. But there's nothing to be gained if we don't try. And here's another thing. A very good friend of mine suggested that maybe the idea is to create a dream for the new generation. One that they can use as leverage against their government to change their future. To create a future in which their government doesn't steal from them and then keep them in squalor. One that enables them to build an economy with an infrastructure where they can create industry and join the international community of commerce and raise their families in peace and prosperity. Who knows, maybe this peace plan will kindle a different kind of uprising. It is certainly different from any other peace plan that has ever been offered. We'll see. And speaking of the Middle East, what's in a name? Did you hear that Iran fired off a new short-range missile called Thunder that was supposed to launch a satellite named Victory? Only it failed to launch. It was Iran's fourth consecutive failure in trying to put a satellite into orbit. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo had a different take on the failed launch. He thinks the Iranians are using the launch as a cover for testing their missiles. He says that the technology used in a space launch is virtually identical to what is needed for a long-range ballistic missile. Each launch, he said, whether failed or not, further allows Iran to gain experience using such technologies that could benefit its missile program under the guise of a peaceful space program, unquote. And not to be overlooked, on the morning of the failed launch, Iran suffered a massive attack on its telecommunications. It was the largest cyber attack in the country's history. The cyber attack that affected the country's internet and cell phone service was a distributed denial of service attack. That kind of attack overwhelmed service with so much traffic that they just shut down. So people throughout the country that morning were unable to use the internet or their cell phones. It's not clear whether this affected the launch of the satellite and caused it to fail. But it wouldn't surprise me to learn there might have been a connection. And finally, coming back to the good old U.S. of A., there is an old story from last week 
about Nancy Pelosi tearing up the formal documents of the State of the Union speech, did she break the law when she did that? Did you know that that document was not hers to destroy? It was a document belonging to Congress, making it an official record. In theory, she could be prosecuted for doing that, and it would certainly serve her right. It won't happen, of course. Just look what happened to Hillary when she destroyed classified government emails on her private phone where they should never have been. And, oh well, nothing happened to her. She still lives in the lap of luxury in her New York estate and dreams of being president. And one more story that will make your heart happy. It's about a vet, a 104-year-old vet, U.S. Marine Corps Major Bill White. He was on Iwo Jima when the soldiers raised the flag, and he also fought in the Korean War and in the Vietnam War. And he now lives at the Oaks at Inglewood Senior Assisted Living Home in Stockton, California. He's 104. And his friends at the home wanted to do something special for him. So they got online and asked people to send Valentine's Day cards to him. They expected, they hoped for, about a hundred. And then the mail began to come. Not a hundred. Not hundreds. Not a thousand. Would you believe that as of Tuesday, four days before Valentine's Day, Major Bill White had received more than 70,000 Valentine's Day cards, all sent with love and respect. Isn't that special? Wow. Now, before I go, I want to tell you a little bit about something that is giving me a great deal of joy these days. I have a farm. It's a small farm. And I raise goats and sheep and chickens. And if I'm lucky, I grow a garden in the summertime, as long as the weeds don't take over. Well, this year... We now have three baby lambs. And watching them run together, frolic together in the field, and I look around and I see the fields and the sky and very little else. And it brings me so much joy. It is so peaceful. And if I could share some of this peacefulness with you, I would love to do that. I wish I could. But maybe telling you about it brings it a little closer. And maybe you can feel some of my joy. Well, the time has flown as it always does, and it's time to wrap up another show. Thank you for spending this hour with me. I'll be back again next week with more news, more stories, and hopefully, always, some food for thought. And don't forget, if you have a comment or a question or anything you'd like to say to me or to this audience, please send me an email at alana at freedmanreport.com and I will be happy to answer your letter on the air or in person if you prefer and I look forward to hearing from you. That would be great. Have a good week. I look forward to spending the time with you again next week. You've been listening to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman and this has been the Friedman Report.